Well, hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's first of the month interview, we're going to talk with Dr. Josh Jipp about the untapped gold mine of relevance in the conclusion to the book of Acts. If you've been wondering what shipwrecks and barbarians have to do with the church and the gospel, then today's episode is for you. Very excited to have Dr. Jip here with us today. Dr. Jip teaches New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, having gotten a Master of Divinity there himself. He also received his THM from Duke Divinity School and did his PhD work in Lukacs studies at Emory University. He's published numerous books and articles, including Reading Acts in the Cascade Companion series and Saved by Faith and Hospitality, published by Erdman's. On top of all that, Dr. Jip is no stranger to the podcasting world since he co-hosts Forward, a TED's faculty podcast, inviting listeners into the research and roundtable discussion at the Divinity School he teaches at. So Dr. Jip, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here, Andrew. Fun to catch up. Yeah, awesome. So why don't you just start out telling us about that podcast, Forward, that you co-host? Yeah, so I guess it was. it's just been a one season now that we've done. There's uh, three colleagues and myself, Michelle Knight, James Arcati, Madison Pierce. And the four of us thought, hey, we've got such a great thing going here at TEDS. Um, amazing faculty that can engage in all kinds of interesting theological conversations. Um, they're passionate about the church. They're fun. They have outside interests. And it'd just be great to be able to make all of them a little bit more accessible to our TED students, but also to a wider audience. So I think, you know, we we started um, the podcast primarily to try to feature our faculty, maybe a few of our alumni, a few special guests, and, and to try to get into some rich theological conversations where we can hopefully model, uh, not only showcase, you know, different faculty members and others, but also, uh, we hope, if we're doing it well, are able to um, just be able to model having um, good theological, ecclesial, practical conversations. So, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. I know that probably for some listeners here, as soon as they hear the word ecclesial, they're probably thinking, uh-oh, this is on a whole nother playing field for me. So this might be a good chance just to explain for people. Churchy, very churchy podcast. Yes. <laughs> There you go. They get that, I'm sure. Uh, why would you say, though, that that level of scholarship, doing a podcast like that, matters for the average Christian just listening in? Yeah, I would say it, the podcast that we do probably does appeal more to seminary students or those who already, you know, pastors, those who have a vested interest kind of in theological education. So I don't want to bill it as though our audience is each and every Christian. But I do think that there are plenty of followers of Jesus that I go to church with that probably would enjoy being able to hear uh, and learn a little bit about, okay, church history is a thing. Uh, maybe I knew that. And now I know a little bit why it matters. And I don't need to be a church historian myself. I don't need necessarily to be a, you know reading everything that comes out. But I can actually grow in my faith be edified in terms of seeing where the church came from and seeing how it navigated uh, controversies or disputes or how it engaged in pastoral care. 
by having some attention to church history. So those would be some of the examples where hopefully um, any Christian would be able to listen in and, and sort of find something that they might be able to connect with. Yeah, that's awesome. You guys should check it out. The podcast is called Forward. It's a great chance to listen in on the discussions of the teachers over at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So for other churchgoers who maybe want a little help doing some of that digging for themselves, as someone who's been doing this for a while, are there any resources or tips that you might give people on how to dig deeper into the Bible on their own? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I can forget that sort of at times what I do is not that complicated. It's not rocket science. It's not, yeah, there, there, is, there is a lot of work and there's a lot of training that goes into it. But at the end of the day, it's opening up a book of the Bible, paying very close attention to what's there in the text, making a lot of observations, asking questions, trying to give answers to those questions based on what I see in the text. And it can get more complicated than that for sure. But there's, um, I guess I'd say one, one great resource is just to engage in an inductive Bible study. I often find that when I get a chance to teach, um, they're called English Bible classes at TEDS, or experience I've had with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship where they do this, and I know there are other organizations as well. Um, some call it inductive Bible study, some call it OIA, observation, interpretation, application. But you just spend a lengthy amount of time with that book of the Bible, with pen and paper, or however it is that you do it, trying to be so careful about seeing what is just there in the text and asking good questions. Um, and then and trying to answer those questions. And then uh, all the while, right, you're asking God through the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate my heart and my mind so that I can see what's there and so that I can uh, follow and obey, uh, learn, listen from whatever it is that, that's there. So I can get more technical f- for sure in some of favorite books and different resources, but I don't want to skip just sort of the the kind of careful Bible study that goes beyond, oh, this is what this means to me, this is what this means to me, um, and really carefully attends to the words that are on the page. So, Yeah, yeah, great. I, I think today will be a great chance to showcase that as we talk today about a more neglected part of the Bible. So since your particular area of expertise is Luke-Acts, why don't we just talk for a bit about the contribution the book of Acts can make to our Christian mindset and and Christian message. So what are some ways that you might see evangelicals today incorporating the book of Acts that you think is a good thing? And what do you think we're maybe missing out on from the book of Acts? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things that right away come to my mind. Um, I think evangelicals engage the book of Acts Uh, often with a mindset of what can we learn about mission from the book of Acts, or what can we learn about church planting? And while there, maybe at times we want to squeeze a little too much out of it in terms of some of the prescriptive how to do mission, sometimes I have a few concerns about that. I nevertheless like really think it's the right and healthy and correct impulse to read the book of Acts and say, this book is about mission. It is about extending early Christian testimony to the death and resurrection of Jesus, his enthronement as king, as Lord and Messiah, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that 
that event then puts into motion the entire book of Acts, which is mission and church planning. So I, I think often evangelicals read the book expecting that they're going to learn about, about that, and I think rightly so. So um, I would say that's certainly a positive. I think there's also the positive in terms of we as evangelicals are, I think, doing the right thing when we kind of maybe lift out a couple of passages uh, that uh, New Testament scholars sometimes refer to as the summary passages about the early church. These are passages in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 6, where the author of Acts, who I will just refer to as Luke from here on out, uh, in accordance with church tradition, he tells us um, that this, these are the fundamental like uh, building blocks practices and identity and makeup of the early church, you know? So what are they doing? They're devoted to prayer, to the apostles' teaching. There's a sense of awe and wonder that God's presence is among them. They are adding to their numbers every day. Actually, God's the one that's doing it. Uh, They're giving testimony to Jesus as the messianic king and ruler. They're sharing meals with one another. They are caring for one another's needs. And so um, anyone that's read maybe the first six or seven chapters of Acts, I think probably will rightly um, see these passages as standing out and will then rightly and intuitively say something along the lines of, I guess if the early church was doing it this way, or these were some of their core practices, that should probably influence what we're doing and what we think about church and uh, things along those lines. So those would be at least two places where I think I see um, uh, Christians and their their intuitions sort of like connected well with the book of Acts. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Do you think there's maybe any instincts that we might lean the wrong direction on, some things we're missing out on at least from Acts in terms of what we go to to get and get out of? Yeah, I, I think... Let me say one way that the book of Acts has been read, and then I'll also, it's it's read in a way that's helpful, but it can also be limiting. Sometimes the book of Acts is read primarily to give us a biography. We read it with the Pauline epistles is basically what I'm trying to say. And then we try to develop sort of a New Testament chronology based on Acts and Paul's letters. Is, is that a right way to read Acts? Yes, it provides, in, in, and it's almost impossible to do any like dating of Paul's letters without the book of Acts, in my opinion. Um, even people that want to just rely on the so-called primary sources of Paul's letters almost invariably appeal to the book of Acts. Anyway, I might be on a tangent there, but we, we try to, uh, people are comfortable looking at Acts in that way. Sometimes they're a little less comfortable in terms of reading its later chapters, maybe chapters 8 through 28, just with an openness to what is God saying in these texts? What are the theological sort of principles, building blocks, patterns that we might learn um, in these final chapters? One theme, um, starting in chapter 8, that goes to the end of the book of Acts is the theme of surprise. And What I mean by the theme of surprise is that God's church is expanding in ways that are surprising and people are joining the church that you might not anticipate or expect would join the church. So you get that right at Acts 8. 
after we move out of Jerusalem. And here are just sort of like your basic cast of characters that start to respond favorably to the gospel. You, you get Samaritans, right? Not people that were uh, in unity theologically, ethnically, whatever, uh, however we want to say it, with uh, Jerusalem and the Judean Christians. And they become now part of the movement, so much so that Peter from Jerusalem has to come down and lay his hands on the work that Philip has been doing and say, yep, this is, <laughs> they're Christians, you know, this is part of the movement. Then it goes to a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia doesn't show up on our Bible maps. There's a lot of interesting stereotypes about Ethiopians in the ancient world. Eunuchs are those who generally also are stereotyped mostly in negative ways, sometimes in terms of their sexuality. Uh, And he is an ideal reader of Isaiah that's asking questions that's converted. Then in Acts 9, you get someone who, you know, is using violence uh, essentially to root out the Christian movement. Uh, The book of Acts, you might expect he's going to get some retribution. Instead, right, the risen Jesus says, you're going to be my star witness. Then you get a Roman centurion, Cornelius, that's the first Gentile in chapter 10. And, and, and anyway, we could just, we could keep going on and on. But when you start asking the question, what is Luke doing? It seems hard to avoid the, the notion or the claim that basically God is expanding his church in surprising ways. He's the one that's doing it. Uh, and the people that are becoming included within this movement often are... Um, from all sectors of society. Um, And so to sort of say, uh, here are the people that are worthy of the gospel ahead of time. Here are the people to whom we should really minister to. God is often, I think, breaking down stigmas and stereotypes by sort of um, uh, including people within God's people that, that might surprise the first readers of the book. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the church today is pretty comfortable taking the first part of Acts and saying, hey, look at all those summary statements. Look at the way it's relevant for us today. But for the rest of the 20 chapters, we might be missing out on doing that same kind of, oh, look, what's there for us? Look at the relevance. Maybe a bit more tempted to just look at some background info for the Apostle Paul instead. Yeah, I think so. And it, it can be, it's hard work, right? There's, there's difficult hermeneutical issues that are involved in knowing how to read a book of history as Christian scripture. Um, but going back to the inductive Bible study method I was saying, I'm pretty confident, you know, you do a, you, someone leads a good Bible study uh, where you're kind of just working inductively through some of these texts, they will jump out to you. Yeah, yeah. So maybe just, take on how we might do that. I know for me personally, sometimes I struggle with Acts knowing like, what am I supposed to walk away with? How do I know what's an example for me today and what's just a detail on the story as part of the plot? So what would you say are some guidelines you use as you're doing that observing, interpreting, applying? Good question. To do that well, it's going to require, I think, just a lot of familiarity with the book of Acts and also with the first volume of Acts, the Gospel of Luke. Because um, I think one of the ways that you're able to do that uh, is you're, uh, uh, to figure out sort of what's of lasting significance or what's not just simply a detail, but is actually something that is um, relative for every you know, church situation is basically finding that this is a theme, it's repeated, 
as a motif, and it continues to show up throughout the book of Acts. So everything, I I tell my students this often, like everything in the book of Acts is descriptive, right? There's no commands or exhortations where Luke just jumps out to his reader and says, hey, and you need to do this too. Everything he's telling us is just a, is a descriptive historical account of the early church. So in, in order to basically be able to say, you know, I don't think casting lots is necessarily something that we need to be doing in terms of making decisions, but I think we do need to be probably engaging in practices of caring for one another through our possessions or prayer or uh, back and forth hospitality relationships or testimony to the risen messianic king. How do we get to those five or six things that I, I mentioned? And there's plenty more as sort of like an enduring legacy and significance for us today. Uh, you do that in part by reading Acts 1 to the end through Acts 28 and finding out that these are the themes or the motifs that are just foundational and fundamental to the book of Acts. Um, The second thing I would say would be the book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. So so the book of Acts begins, the author tells Theophilus, you know, just remember all of the things that I wrote in my first book about what Jesus did and taught from the beginning. And then the rest of, that's Luke that he's talking about, right? And then the book of Acts is going to continue to narrate the things that Jesus is continuing to do now through his church. Maybe the lengthy point I'm trying to make here is the story of Acts continues the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So if you see that there are practices or themes that are showing up in Acts that are continuing from the Gospel of Luke, what you're seeing there is the early church is continuing the ministry of Jesus even as he's at the right hand of the Father and has sent his spirit to basically empower them to do that. The real quick, last thing I will say is um, if you get you know a, different cultures from different time periods uh, that are reading the book of Acts, you are going to see different things. There's no sort of, uh, the, uh, what I'm saying is th- those different cultures from different time periods are probably going to find things in the book of Acts that strike them as more relevant than others. And I think that's okay. I think that the church throughout the centuries should be praying that God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to give us the wisdom and discernment to be able to know uh, how do we continue the story, how do we live it out. Sure. So yeah, maybe if we're just reading through the book of Acts and we're in a particular passage and confused about uh, what to walk away with from this, instead of scratching our heads and looking more minutely at this word or this sentence, maybe a good instinct is just read the whole thing. Start at Luke. Read all the way through multiple times. And the more we get a feel for that overarching purpose and message and themes, the easier time we'll have coming to one piece here or there thinking, oh yeah, this is how this fits in. I can see the the flashers of what's being drawn out here, and I, I can see that relevance. Yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I think thinking of your dissertation and the work you've done, a great example of one of those stories that might seem confusing to know what to do with is the conclusion to the Book of Acts. Right. This story about Paul getting shipwrecked, 
about befriending these barbarians on the island of Malta. That was a big part of your dissertation, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. So for listeners who may be a little fuzzy on how the Book of Acts ends, maybe could you give us a little recap on what's going on in those last two chapters? Yeah. Uh, Keyword little, right? Okay. So um, for the chapters 21 through 26, Paul has been giving defense speeches. He's incarcerated as a prisoner. He's getting shipped around, uh, basically, and he's telling both Jewish as well as Roman leaders that he is innocent. He has no beef against his people. And um, the last thing that you're going to see is going to be another one of these trial scenes where Paul's going to give a defense speech. Uh, Starts in Acts 28, uh, verse 16 or so. So what's interesting is, and the whole re- the reader is just waiting for like the conclusion, waiting for what is going to happen to Paul. So uh, beginning in Acts 27, then you get this lengthy, it's 44, ver- uh, if you count the first 10 verses of 28, you get 54 verses basically of Paul's journey on a boat to make his way finally to Rome. And I would just say, first of all, like, if you're reading this, um, a good observation would be, why do we need this detail? It's like, Luke is totally capable of telling his story in a punchy way and quickly. And now, right, every, every student that has had to translate this in the Greek and is familiar primarily with Koine knows that it's painful because you're, you, you have all this nautical terminology that you're, and I wasn't either, uh, uh, familiar with. So observation, basically we have a lengthy story and it has a delaying tactic because we're all waiting for Paul to get to Rome. Why do we need 54 verses? So to make a long story short, what happens is Paul's on the boat. Um, he's going to make his way to Rome. The first 44 verses, he is giving advice and wisdom. Here's, it's kind of hard to imagine in some ways. Here's how you should, you know, navigate. We should stay here for the winter. We shouldn't go there. You know, he's sort of like a backseat driver that uh, turns out to be prophetic and accurate. Uh, When they get in, when some bad decisions are made and they're, you know, almost, uh, almost destroyed and they're losing heart, he gets a message from an angel and then speaks the encouraging word from the angel basically says, hey, we're going to make it. We're going to be saved. Here's what's going to happen, though. We're going to get shipwrecked on this island, but, you know, take good heart. And the men are still uh, terrified and a little depressed. And then, you know, later he breaks bread with them and shares, you know, the, the bread and the wine. He breaks it and they're all encouraged and they have heart to keep traveling. Paul's right. They get shipwrecked on an island. It's called Malta. Uh, the Maltese are referred to as barbarians. So maybe we're expecting they're not going to be so nice to Paul and his buddies. I don't know if they're his buddies, but his, you know, incarcerated companions. And they show excessive philanthropy. They're the nicest barbarians ever. And while Paul is even working with his hands by building the fire, a snake comes out and bites him. The barbarians, uh, we're told, think he's going to die. When he doesn't die, they think he's a god. They're amazed, and then he spends a lengthy period of time in the leader of Malta, his household, receiving hospitality, and then Paul gives healings to Publius's father-in-law and all the other Maltese, and then the barbarians send them on their way to Rome, right? So it's, there's a lot of interesting detail and information in there. 
Well, here we were just talking about this simple process, observe, interpret, apply, looking for the details. And now we're getting an explosion of TMI here with Paul, the, the shipwreck, the island. I guess the obvious question here would be, you know, how do we interpret that? Let alone, what are we supposed to do with any of that on any sort of level similar to the Acts 4 and Acts 6 kind of stuff? Right. Yeah. If I had to summarize it in terms of like what primarily is Luke doing here with this story, it would be this. As I said, we've had these five, six chapters or so where Paul is almost like a philosopher giving these defense speeches at his trial. Uh, He is, though, for Luke, the apostle to the Gentiles. Luke, one of his main themes is that the gospel goes to all peoples. But we're, we're sort of seeing him having this intra-Jewish dispute about whether or not uh, he's faithful to his own heritage and covenant and so forth. I think one of the things Luke does with this story is that he gives to us uh, uh, a really uh, fantastic and beautiful story that reminds us Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. These are, by the way, the very last words that we get from Paul in the book of Acts, where he says, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And so in Acts 27, in the first part of Acts 28, we get Luke taking the, it's a common sort of motif in the ancient world, basically the theme of a hero that's on a journey and gets shipwrecked as a means then of Luke reminding us that God's gospel will go to the nations. But without being so blatant, without him making conversions, there aren't any baptisms. This is one of the tricky things about this text. It perplexed many people, right? But Paul on the boat, he's like a prophet. I've already mentioned some of the ways. He's prophetically declaring the will of God to these people on the boat, even in a way that's then shown to be accurate. Six times Luke uses the word soteria or sozo, uh, uh, the language of, that's the Greek word for salvation. Yeah, it can be translated as safety. Um, But that's such a key word for Luke that the fact that Paul and the narrator are saying Paul is going to save everyone through, God is going to essentially through Paul, though, all of these Gentiles on the boat, right? There's sort of, it's, it's hard not to say, is this, is this, I don't want to call it an allegory because it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly, Luke is presenting it absolutely as historical, but it should sort of remind us of Paul and the other early Christian missionaries' role to dispense uh, God's salvation or to be the mouthpiece of his salvation to the nations. Right. So maybe that snapshot represents the much bigger picture of what God is doing, not only then, but today with that expansive reach out to the Gentiles. You know, just briefly, if I can, in chapter 27, verses 33 through 38, you know, if if I took the time to read this, I think all of your audience would say, whoa, Paul's meal that he's sharing with these people on the boat sounds a lot like the Last Supper. Yeah, I mean, breaking bread and the wine, already from you talking about it, it sounds like it. Exactly, yeah. They're all encouraged. They're filled with joy. He numbers how many are there. There were 276 persons in the ship. Usually, uh, that numbering language is reserved for conversions. So, 
But he doesn't tell us, you know, anyone was converted. He doesn't tell us anyone was baptized. And so it's this notorious little, you know, kind of conundrum in terms of was it a Last Supper? Was it not? I'm not sure we can fully answer that except to say, right, Luke is in a way that is um, not, not blatant, not direct, uh, uh, reminding us that God is continuing to work through these early Christian missionaries that take their cue from Paul, that engage in friendly, peaceful, um, hosp- hospitable relationships with these Gentiles. And uh, I'll stop there, but you get sort of a simple thing that seems to be going on when Paul gets stranded on the uh, on Malta on the island as well. Yeah, and I mean, this is like a brilliant narrative, right? So we shouldn't be surprised if Luke is using these artistic, symbolic snapshots to show something bigger than just those incidents. Like, that isn't reading too much into it. That might be what we get out of it when we look really closely. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Historians then and now, um, they are tasked with, if they're doing a good job, of using their sources, eyewitness testimony as the basis for their narrative. But certainly every historian is not, uh, generally the good ones are not ones that are then just sort of randomly passing on uh, a list of events, but are crafting those true stories, that eyewitness testimony, uh, in order to persuade their audience and make some some claims about some things. And so uh, whether it's Acts 27 or really it's anywhere in the book of Acts, uh, we should come expecting that Luke is telling us a true story, but this true story is one in which he is trying to persuade us to see and believe and learn certain things about God and the church and so forth. Right. Right, definitely. Even in the Gospels too, right? Like no historian is just interested in data dumping. There's a story to be told, even when it's accurate. And we don't want to miss out on the beauty and literary art of that aspect. Now, when you're talking about the Gentiles and what Paul is doing, what the church is doing, what God is doing to expand beyond just the Jewish Christians to all kinds of Christians— Uh, It's definitely helpful for us to remember all the intercultural disputes and struggles as the surprises happen in the book of Acts. But I'm guessing that for most of us listening, we're in that Gentile camp. We've already been reached as people who aren't Jewish. So what do you think we should do with that aspect of Acts? Do you think that this salvation at the end of Acts calls us to appreciate what God has done for us? Or... Like it keeps us expanding outward. It keeps expanding our vision, keeping us from being monocultural. Yeah, right. I take it to primarily mean for the reader that comes to Acts 27 and Acts 28 and then in, and sees Paul engaging in friendly, hospitable, mutually beneficial relationships with these Gentiles. Even the barbarians in Malta are not, in fact, we're expecting that they might be doing some bad things to the strangers, but they're great. They, sh- they are so kind and you know, gracious and hospitable. And Paul then ends by saying, the salvation of God will go to the Gentiles. They will listen. That primarily, uh, I think it makes best sense to read it as an encouragement for whoever it is, whether you're a first or second century reader a couple thousand years ago, or whether it's us today, at, along the lines of, let's take up the Pauline mantle 
let's continue. Uh, let's not stigmatize people uh, in terms of viewing them as unworthy of the gospel or uh, as those who uh, we just know are going to be pre- predisposed not to believe it. But let's carry the Pauline mantle by taking up the gospel, the message of Christ to all people and all places and all cultures, expecting that we uh, have something to give, which is really only testimony to Messiah Jesus, and that they have something. They have the resources within their own language and culture to be able to receive and embrace and contribute and then uh, move forward uh, in their own linguistic, cultural, ethnic framework, or, or whatever that may be, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so the differences, the tensions between these Jewish crowds of Christians and Gentile crowds of Christians, that tension wasn't just with the ethnic differences or even with the theological questions that we think through today. It was like just the stereotypes, right? They were different. They were this other crowd that wasn't already in the crowd. And the church had all these preconceived ideas about their contribution, their value, how reachable they really were. And so even behind the Jew-Gentile ethnic Bible stuff, there's plenty of low-hanging fruit for us and just the groups different from our own churches today, right? And what we, we look out at and, and reach out to and the value we see in the people around us. That's right. Luke loves to raise a stereotype, I think, primarily, often at least, to subvert it, um, to show you that, oh, this is what you think, this is what my audience might think of a centurion, you know, brutish, uh, extortionist, involved in idolatry. But Cornelius, right, his alms have ascended like a sacrifice, and his prayers like a sacrifice before God. And he's the first, you know, the first Gentile convert. And I could just keep listing example of example after that, but it does, I think, go to show that, and that, that would be another example of one of these pattern or themes that you see, oh, you know, five, six, seven, eight times, uh, God um, might be speaking through the Spirit uh, in such a way that we see that and then draw a certain lesson about uh, uh, stigmas and stereotypes as not being helpful for making sense of real human life. Great. Yeah, that's already helping me to see the gold mine of relevance in this conclusion. And all these observations of shipwrecks and barbarians, how much more is going on? And one more thing I was really hoping you could draw out for us. I know in a lot of what you've written and talked about and taught on, you focus on that hospitality stuff, the sharing the meal like you've kind of talked about already. Um, and I just want to ask, with hospitality, when you say that, do you mean the same thing we think about today or are there... Are there differences in that ancient culture and what hospitality was? What's what's going on here with that hosting and being a guest in the Book of Acts? Right. Um, yes, I will. I will answer that question in like sixty seconds. You think I can do it, Andrew? <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. <laughs> Probably we'll not. We'll <laughs> see. We'll we'll edit you down to sixty. Uh, yeah. Too much stuff in my head that I'm like, I say that. Um, yeah. So. Uh, In the ancient world and in the Bible, I would say hospitality primarily is a practice that starts between uh, people that don't know each other. Um, You're a host, you're a guest, and there might be different reasons for engaging in this practice, but it usually involves, at at least the beginning, a host that bestows um, whatever their guest needs. Maybe it's food, maybe it's drink. 
maybe it's bed, maybe uh, like me, it's, you know, just incredible entertainment and, you know, hearing of great stories. Uh, maybe it's, it's whatever being attentive to what your guest <clears throat> who's in the vulnerable situation might need. And there are protocols for the guest as well. But then the goal of this, uh, the hospitality relationship, is not that you are the host or the guest uh, perpetually, but that it then moves into, I'll just call it friendship, so, some kind of social incorporation between those two parties or even groups. And one of the beautiful things about Luke uh, and Acts, I'll, I'll, I'll mention here, I guess, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, is that you see a lot of hospitality, but there are times where Jesus sort of bends the, um, uh, you can't always, sometimes he's host, sometimes he's guest, sometimes he's both. But what he's doing is he's consistently, throughout the book of Acts, engaging in these hospitality meals where he receives hospitality from others or he bestows it upon others. And out of that space, the room that has been made between Jesus and the stranger, the, the sinner, the tax collector, the Pharisee, whoever it may be, the goal then is a space in that instance to encounter uh, the very presence of God. And that, that's another theme that shows up from you know, really the beginning of Luke, goes to the end of Acts and is sort of one of those um, foundational practices, not only in the ancient world, but in Luke Acts, that if you kind of try to take it out, the whole, the whole story unravels. So, hmm. Wow. Yeah. So maybe just a way of tying all the things that we've talked about together. Uh, we've been bringing this down to earth with how approachable the Bible is for everyone to dig deeper, observe, interpret, apply. And even with Acts, we're pretty comfortable doing that with the first six or eight chapters. But after that, there's so much untapped potential for us to be reading and observing and taking out things from Acts. And with these last two chapters in the book of Acts, we may get tempted to get bogged down by the, the, the shipwreck details and nautical terms and the barbarians and all the subtle ways that Luke is snapshotting something bigger for us. But in the middle of that, if we see those themes, if we view what Paul is doing, being a host, being a guest, we can really walk away with some important guidance and wisdom on being the church today. So with all that in mind, what would you say we walk away with seeing all this hospitality stuff and the, the way the book of Acts ends? What would you say that teaches us about what it looks like to be the church today? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> repeating a little bit what I said before, it certainly is the book, you can't read the last couple chapters of Acts, I don't think, well, without saying the church, part of its fundamental identity is to be a people that are, st that are still on mission. Uh, what that looks like, the different forms and methods are going to vary from culture to culture and so forth, but that is one of the core practices of the church. Um, the, the, book, the book of Acts uh, um, ends also in terms of, I think, giving to us a snapshot, as, as I mentioned before as well, that, um, that, that, how do I say it, church, the identity of the church is something that is communal. It is not something that is just me, my Bible, and God in my house doing quiet time. Um, maybe it is during pandemic or something, but you know, it's like, even even then, right? The 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 Lord. Everything we do, 
um, uh, uh, as the church that flows out of the book of Acts, right, should be giving to us this sort of like communal collective identity as God's people. And one of the things, one of the ways that we live well into that really is through friendship. Uh, uh, as the early church was doing, sharing food, uh, um, the core practices uh, that Jesus left them with in each other's homes. Uh, and we're looking for ways to extend God's gifts and hospitality to other people. What are, you know, what are ways that we can continue to um, uh, be good hosts or be good guests and go to where other pe people are? Again, you have Paul doing both as a host and a guest throughout the book of Acts. Uh, so anyway, those are, yeah, those are a few of the things I would say that uh, the end of the book of Acts kind of gives us some, some aspects of um, uh, core practices that the church might continue to chew on for its own sustenance. Yeah, well, there you have it, guys. E even if you're locked down in your house with COVID, don't miss out on the friendships that matter in being the church and being a Christian. And not just making some buddies, but living the community life of the gospel, reaching out to the other we may have stereotypes about, expanding this vision of who God is including in this good news. So thanks, Dr. Jip, for helping us to see that today from the book of Acts and letting us glean from your wisdom. Yeah, it was, uh, oh, I, I never turned down an opportunity to talk about Luke or Acts. So thanks for, thanks for the fun questions, Andrew. 